All right, welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. My name is Flag Taylor. I'm president of the Board of Trustees of the ACF. And by now, you're already surprised to hear a voice different from the familiar Romanian one that you usually hear. But I'm happy to say that I'm here to talk to Titus Teixeira, the executive director of the ACF, both about the organization. I thought this would be a good opportunity for him to introduce the organization and introduce his movie series and tell uh, the audience in a kind of semi-formal way about what his plans are. And then a little bit later in the podcast, we'll get into um, a little bit about Titus's background and how he came to be so interested in movies and uh, came to be interested in thinking about them in such a deep and affecting way. So welcome, Titus. I'm glad to have you in the interviewee chair. It must be strange for you to be <laughs> sitting at the opposite end of the table, as it were. But um, welcome. Hello, Flag. Thanks, first of all, for the strange idea of doing this. I'm used to saying I'm the host, hello, this is what we're doing, not introducing myself, which is in a sense rude, but I suppose <laughs> in the online world, everything is really, really fast, you don't have time for manners. So this is really the first time I am introducing myself in two years it is now. Yeah, it's an odd thing for the, uh, I guess, the well-mannered American to, to issue a correction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Strange times. Uh, it's 2019. <laughs> so, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the American Cinema Foundation, what it is, maybe a little bit about its history. Let's start there. Yes, I am now the executive director of the American Cinema Foundation and therefore have a run of the joint. But of course, I have worthy men and prestigious like yourself on the board to hold me in check in case I try to do something crazy. <laughs> The ACF was founded in 94. It's a non-profit, of course, and it was a place for Republicans and conservatives in Hollywood, whether they were donors or acting talent or on the production side, or like my predecessor, Gary McVeigh, he used to work for the AFI, the American Film Institute. He was organizing Filmex in the 80s in Hollywood, and he was very involved for the AFI and then for the American Cinema Foundation on the festival circuit and to screen movies, to bring especially, say, movies from Eastern Europe in late mm. communism and post-communism, to bring them to America. That's what we have in common, really. He knows way more about Eastern Europe than most Americans, and he took an unusual interest in a critic hailing from Eastern Europe, such as myself. Yeah. The foundation also organized a Freedom Fest, screening these kinds of movies. It also organized writing competitions. In the heydays of conservatives being involved in the culture, somebody who won such a competition could walk away with 10K, which is not chump change. No. Unfortunately, of course, after the Iraq war started, a lot of culture polarized. A lot of things became impossible to do, which had been done before for reasons of political partisanship and just the hatred in the media. And then, of course, the crisis came the financial crisis, and that affected funding, donations, charity work, especially on issues like culture, where conservatives don't throw a lot of money. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so that effectively killed off the first version of the ACF. It's a sad story in a way. There are not many things remaining from it, except that we still have, say, the right to award the Andrei Vaida Prize in the name of the great director, because oh. Gary was friends with Andrei Vaida and his wife. And again, coming from Eastern Europe, I am especially touched to see that anybody would care about this and would take it so seriously. 
And the, is this a, an award that's still given out annually? The no, it was no? discontinued. We are going mm. to try to bring it back in some way. Okay. Which brings me to the second version of the ACF that I am running and what we are doing. We started, first of all, with the movie podcast, to tell the truth, uh, as a way to keep our old postmodern conservative blog going. We should let our audience know that you and I and Carl Eric Scott and John Presnell and Pete Spiliakos all came from Peter Lawler's postmodern conservative blog. And actually, I guess James Poulos was Mr. Postmodern Conservative even before that. That's right. This goes back a long while, and I am happy and honored to have all you gentlemen around at the foundation doing this podcast to try to keep going the particular brand of cultural criticism that you got with Postmodern Conservative, which we should say was first at First Things and then at National Review Online, and now is not anywhere anymore. It too was discontinued, victim of the changing landscape of digital media. Yeah, but at least it lives on in the podcast world. Yeah, I'm happy to have had a chance to run this new version of the show and to try to make a success of it. I firmly believe that what Peter Lawler did has a future, that is going to be an institution of some fame and certainly great resilience. And I think that's really what defines our age. What we need to do is a lot of rolling with the punches. Yeah. That's why we started the podcast. It's almost two years now, and it's one of the big things. We put a lot of work into this stuff. We're happy to be pretty much the only podcast that deals with culture where we take a lot of care of editing, first of all, because we don't think of this in terms of radio. It's in and it's out. You might listen to it in your car or doing chores and it's over. We're trying to create, through our various series of podcasts, stuff that lasts both by way of critical coherence and by way of depth of reflection on American society and on American poetry. The main thing we do is the Middle Brow series. The foundation is dedicated to Middle Brow as a category of cultural criticism. We think writers and directors are far smarter and far more thoughtful than they are given credit for. To some extent, entertainment by itself humiliates their pride because all that really matters is whether you're profitable. And to some extent, the media and the press are the culprits. Critics aren't really thoughtful about society in the way movie makers are, and so they don't care. And on the other hand, the press is mostly about glamour, which is a very stupid thing to do if you're in the poetry business, where what matters is, are you going to last? Right. Poetry is about some degree of immortality, which is why we still have poems from thousands of years back. Nobody cares about the fleeting everyday stuff. And we're trying to show that naturally American art is middle brow. It is not highbrow in the sense in which Homer is. It's not going to last 3,000 years. But it is not lowbrow in the sense in which punditry is or journalism, which goes out with the day's trash. It has an appeal to the public. It is all about popularity, but it also has a high component. It is about themes and symbols and thinking about American society and dramatizing its conflicts. Mm -hmm. So we just published our 35th episode of the Middle Brow series on Harold Ramis's Prophet of Donald Trump. Because in the 80s, he made all these really, really successful comedies 
Caddyshack, Ghostbusters Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield and Bill Murray, essentially playing Donald Trump, literally a real estate billionaire and the sort of sleazy con man, taking on the elites of conservative country clubs and progressives in municipal and federal government administration and winning with great popular support. And nobody paid attention. Nobody thought that demagogy or populism or the revenge of the people or however you want to put it is actually going to happen. But it did happen, and nobody's laughing now. (laughs) (laughs) And so just to talk a little bit more generally about the Middlebrow series and some of the other series, do you try to search for topics and films for the podcast in any kind of systematic way? I mean, do you feel like you have to talk about, you know, films that are widely recognized as successful either presently or in the recent past? Or do you more or less kind of field ideas from people that you want to interview? And does the thing bubble up more organically? We put a lot of thought into how we choose stuff, but it's also the case that especially the core team from our Pomocon days We've been talking and reading each other and recording together for years and we have a natural way of bringing things up and dealing with them and so there's room for a lot of improvisation when there's enough trust and competence. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of planning. We do a critic series precisely in order to talk to some of the most interesting critics and literally to digitize them, to bring them into the digital future and to try to preserve the best about critical competence and confidence, which of course has been wiped out otherwise by the shift to digital media. And the critic series includes people like Terry Teachout and Armand White. Um, are yes. there others I'm not thinking of? Oh, is Paul Cantor in that yes, series? Yes, Professor too? Cantor as well. And uh, for example, Terry Teachout and I agreed on doing a long running series on noir. We're already, I think, seven episodes in, and we're going to keep it up on a monthly basis because there's a lot to talk about. And noir is an unusually modern and democratic genre, timely in its tragic inclination. These movies were not necessarily successful. If they are now cult favorites or critic favorites, that doesn't mean a lot of people have watched them. But people still remember Humphrey Bogart, so I think, yeah, some of this stuff is going to be watched. Or right. Sunset Boulevard or these other Billy Wilder things like Double Indemnity, which was our most recent podcast. So we're and, trying and to achieve coherence, to talk through a genre at its most serious, what it says about America and what it says about artists, and also to introduce people to directors and writers in a somewhat systematic way to get a yeah. sense for the elegance and the touch of greatness that these people could put into their movies. And am I right that these series, both the critic series and some of the other series that you've already done, these are not podcast. I mean, I, I listen to them, obviously, but these are not podcasts that will only appeal to people who are already steeped in film and film history, who are already kind of converts, say, to film noir, converts to the greatness of the old Westerns. But these are podcasts that will appeal to people who don't necessarily have any great familiarity with some of these things so they can... You know, the podcasts are a device to encourage people to get interested in some of the great films that they might not know about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We are firmly hopeful that American movies, if they're great, have a power to reach wide audiences and over generations, which is why we reach back into the past every now and then. There is much to learn from the podcast, but they are, first of all, meant as introductions to give people a sense of the fun and the wit, and therefore the thoughtfulness behind what these people do, and to help people appreciate movies more. 
to learn about music in movies, to learn about cinematography and acting more. Our idea is love is what's going to guide people in the future. It is no longer the situation of the movies or of TV or even cassettes that set very serious limits on what you could see or what you could see again or whether things even sounded or looked properly. Right. And now you have vast offerings and people are drowning in a sense. And we think that what's going to make the difference is can you tell people about stuff they love or they might love, why it's worthwhile. Right. So we're always trying to reach new audiences and persuade them this is something you're going to enjoy or enjoy watching again since a lot of the stuff we talk about are famous movies. Yeah, but you can't yeah, and you can't turn experts into new viewers so to speak to right. help them look at movies in a new way because in a sense becoming comfortable with stuff means you don't really care about it anymore. It feels too familiar to look at it with fresh eyes. And by bringing in various kinds of experts, really, we're trying to show people stuff that they haven't seen before. Yeah, it's a paradox. I mean, I was thinking the podcasts are a wonderful way for people to become familiar with things that they really should know and should love. I think it's great precisely because people now have such easy access to any of these things. <laughs> you, can, you can watch more or less anything you want if you subscribe to the right streaming service or however else you might get your movies, and that's great. But it's also the case that there's so much out there, and precisely because there's so much access, I don't think people have a good sense of what's worth watching and what it's not and especially young people you can't really count on their familiarity with cultural touchstones from the past so i you know i would i would encourage my students to use the podcast as something to guide them and uh, remind them that there are things worth watching and they should take the time to familiarize themselves with them so. yeah absolutely overabundance poses the same problem as scarcity you don't really have anything whether you have nothing or you have too much it's hard to choose if you're wasting time with your Amazon Fire Stick or on Netflix trying to figure out what to watch, uh, then yeah, that's a whole new much. kind of problem that reproduces the previous situation. Yeah. And so we're trying to fix that. And it's also true that to a large extent, the critical press is worthless. It doesn't have the ambition to tell the American nation what to watch and how to look at it. It doesn't even try for popularity. But at the same time, it's easily replaced because it's not serious by what are essentially aggregations of opinion. And right. if that's all it's going to do, it should just be replaced by machines and algorithms as soon as possible and right. give people a break. Criticism should be doing something better both for the people to attract them and tell them how to look at things and also especially for the artists. American artists are often underrated because they are misunderstood and they're misunderstood because the critics don't spend much time trying to understand them and to try to explain what's so great about popular things and what other great things that aren't popular should be. Yeah. Have you thought about or been able to um, contact any I was just thinking, well, now we'll shift and maybe talk a little bit about your plans for the ACF for the future. What about a director series? I don't know how easy it is or difficult it is to get access to some of the directors, but that would be an interesting series for the future if we can find a way to get some of the young, good new directors on the podcast or older directors, whoever would want to come on. But I'm sure they'd jump at the chance to be taken seriously as artists in the way that you do. So I am not sure. There's an old reason and a new reason for this. So one guy I tried to get in touch with, talk to some of my critic friends, to talk to the publicists who dealt with this thing, is yeah. Peter Bogdanovich, 
there's an example of a critic and writer and movie maker who himself did a lot of work to preserve Hollywood culture in the 70s and since. And nope, couldn't get in touch with him. There's an old reason for that if you watch Peter Bogdanovich's interviews with John Ford. Ford almost always makes fun of him and doesn't answer his question seriously because he knows in America if you acquire a reputation as an intellectual or an artist, you're dead. It's, <laughs> you had better make popular stuff and shut up about the greatness aspect of it all. Don't brag. Interesting. But there's also a new reason, of course. One thing that has changed in the new Hollywood is various strains of American moralism have been reinvigorated and we have new versions of codes of what is tolerable and what is not tolerable. They're not official in the way the Hayes Code was official in old Hollywood, but they are just as strong and there are all sorts of things you don't want to talk about because in certain ways being a celebrity now means being offered the blindfold that comes with a complimentary bullseye. You're never going to see it coming, but somebody's going to hate you enough to try to get you for whatever. It's true that there's a lot of justice being done, but it's also true that people don't want to talk because you might end up like Kevin Hart recently did. There's an America beloved celebrity said, sure, I'll do the Oscars. Turns out to have been a very bad idea. Within hours, somebody pulled off some 10-year-old joke on Twitter, and now he's problematic. Well, of course, it's still the case that people want to be celebrities, but even more than that, people want to destroy celebrities, and it's just more prudent to shut up. Yeah, yeah. So it's not so easy to get at it, but yes, we are looking to do this. One of the sort of events that we are preparing at the ACF is to go to college campuses and organize weeks of movies have a director there, screen a bunch of his movies, and talk to the students, talk to faculty, talk to really anybody who is willing to show up. They're not going to be restricted. And help people appreciate movies directly and as practically as possible. As I said, it's also about saving artists from oblivion, which is really the purpose of the critics. Find out which things are great and make sure they last. Great, great. Before we shift to talk about you and your own background, anything else you would mention in terms of future plans for the ACF? I should say a few more things, I guess, about the series we're doing. Beyond our large, large middle-brow series and the critics series, we're also doing a flagship podcast series and several related ones like our series on American Masters on Ford and Peck in Paw so far, the great Western directors, and we'll be introducing other directors. We're trying to create a critical education about great directors going at length through their movies. So we've got maybe five or six Hitchcock movies now. So also with Francis Ford Coppola and with other directors, whether it's Brian De Palma or John Ford movies, a couple of Peckinpah movies, we're trying to preserve the old masters, not least of all as educators. We're trying to show what these people understood about America and how they thought you should be talking about it. That is the proper job of poetry. It's not taken seriously very much, but it is the case nowadays that people love their artists far more than they did before, in a sense, because they're closer to them. There's more direct contact, and there are fewer intermediary institutions like TV networks or talent agencies or what have you. There are fewer intermediaries, and in that sense, the stars and the people are closer. 
some part of that is actually very good because it allows people to take seriously this stuff again and if you fall in love with a director we try to make it our business to help you learn as much about his thinking and what he had to say about america as possible that's great that's great all right so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about you and your background and how you became interested in film and how you became interested in american film in particular you're born in Romania, still under communism, correct? Yep. And so when, I guess maybe we'll start here. When did you first start watching American movies and how did you do it? I was a bouncing baby boy in the fight against capitalism. That's what I always say. We lost. I'm glad we lost or I wouldn't be here. But as a child in barely post-communist Romania, I started seeing American movies on TV and then some in theaters, actually. They came in very quickly. Romania Americanized culturally incredibly quickly. It was already the case before the wall fell, before the end of communism, before 89, that people would smuggle in movies on VHS and, of course, American rock music. People were passionate about this stuff. It's hard to describe it to people who oh, I'm sure. had yeah, it for yeah. free, so to speak, because they didn't have this thrill of freedom from tyranny. And just from gray, dank everydayness, which is what everydayness was like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Afterwards, you could see all sorts of movies. And when I was a kid, you could go on TV and watch Cartoon Network, which in the afternoons turned into TCM. And TCM is where I first saw Westerns. That's how I learned about John Wayne. And were there Romanian subtitles or did you, were you yeah. studying English already? Yeah, okay. And yeah. I learned English early, but Romania is also strangely unique in this. People don't dub stuff, not even nowadays, except I guess kids' movies. Everything was subtitled, so it was much easier to learn English to begin with. In most of Europe, especially, of course, Western Europe, everything is dubbed, and so people never really heard the voice of John Wayne or Brad Pitt, for that matter. Strange to think about, but there it is. Whereas in our situation, everything was changing. Everything was a chaos in the 90s. And so people just did subtitles because it was the easiest way to get these things to market, so right. to speak. And, and what do you, do you remember any particular films from this early period that struck you as interesting? I mean, not, not necessarily in any kind of deep way, but just movies that you were attracted to. Die Hard, I think that was the first American movie that I was yeah. really, really impressed with. Of course, and did, did you I consider saw it, it years did you cons- after it came out. <laughs> I guess the next question is, was it a Christmas movie when you first saw it? Did you put it in that category? <laughs> uh, no, we thought American Christmas movies were Home Alone. <laughs> which in hindsight is a movie about cruelty and the pleasure we take in cruelty, which is weird. <laughs> that is weird, yes. So but, Die Hard, uh, how about any, any others? That was a big deal, Die Hard, and it was a very good introduction to America. It was, I guess, the last time when there were everyman heroes on screen, and it had all these connections to the past, to the Western, and to the hard-boiled, sarcastic detective, and all this stuff. It's the whole history of America in there, and all the innovations of action movies, which, especially as a child, but even now, I find that stuff fascinating. Right. So it was a very good beginning. Otherwise, the stuff that was popular and the stuff that was done in the 90s was not all that spellbinding. Mm-hmm. I did uh, become introduced with Die Hard to the director, John McTiernan, who I think is great and vastly underrated. And so all the movies I could find, I watched. That's how I learned to think about directors in the first place, actually. 
And at this point, did you become interested also in, in um, European cinema and, and European directors? Is, is that happening concurrently to your experience on TCM? Or was that later, later on? It's a strange thing to explain, but when you're in Europe, or rather when you're European, all of this stuff is simply your inheritance. Ah, okay. So Hollywood movies were new, foreign, surprising, and very exciting. Mm-hmm. Whereas European movies were ours, or what we had. Of course, European movies are primarily art movies, and it's hard to explain what it means as a teenager or a young person to think that you should be watching movies by masters, which are essentially for adults, not for children, of course. But right. there it is. They would just show up now and then on TV because you had to fill the programming. And then in high school, when I started watching movies seriously, everybody knew what you were supposed to watch. So it's nothing like in America where you had to wait for things to come to an art house theater or something of that experience. It's not a minority opinion, really. It's yeah. just what's something great. It's yeah, not yeah. that they're necessarily popular. It's just that the names are far more well-known than you might expect for art cinema. Yeah. There's well, a about... confidence about them for that right, reason. Right. And how about someone like Andre Vida? When did you see his movies? Obviously, also in high school, because high school. it was already 15 years after communism had collapsed and a certain interest in what happened and what was it like before and what was coming when we began to realize as teenagers that we're going through a chaos. It's nothing like it used to be, and we have no idea what the new situation is going to be either. Right. But we became aware of that for the first time, the chaos of the 90s, we just experienced it, we never thought about it. Afterwards, we started thinking, and so gradually we turned in part to masters to describe, you know, what's going on. And also, they were removed from our experience by the massive shift, the end of communism. So, in a way, it was doing archaeology, cultural archaeology, you were trying to figure out what the past was like. Yeah. Because the difference really was vast. And we would see this on a daily basis with people who were old enough to think that this new world was simply incomprehensible to them. Yeah. And I, I mean, from my experience, as you know, in the Czech Republic, former Czechoslovakia and other places, it, it's also true, I would imagine, that for, for young people who wanted to understand what the old order was like, there's lots of older people who don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and so movies is probably a better... You're better. You're, you're better off. You're gonna get a sense of what the past was like more easily through movies and sort of cultural remnants in a way than you are through direct dialogue. Because for the most part, lots of people are just not interested in talking about it and reliving it. So yes, of course. And these are things that are just really, really hard to explain to get the feel for a place before it was involved in chaotic change. To just think that there used to be a way of life had a sense of normality about it and people thought it would just continue and they were shocked of course when it stopped it's really really hard to get a glimpse of that and especially of course in modern times anybody has this experience when you look at old photos or old film from a hundred years ago it's hard to believe that it's real it's hard to believe that the world once was this way and everybody thought it was normal right so and were your... in our case, it was so accelerated, and it was such yeah, a combination yeah. of everyday political and economic changes, significant transformations around, and at the same time, vast cultural change. 
And were there other people in your family? I mean, were your parents interested in film too? Or is this just an interest that solely your own? I mean, were there other people in your family that were watching movies and kind of showing you the way? Or Romania in the 90s was sort of like America in the 50s about TV. People were fascinated with the stuff and would spend hours watching TV. But no, movies are not such a popular taste. Popular movies were a popular taste. And now and then we would go to a movie theater. But Mm -hmm. not really memorable stuff. I did learn from one of my brothers about Hong Kong cinema, which is one of my great loves. And at this point, an area of expertise. But it just started because I guess some of these movies were cheap enough or simply pirated that they ended up showing on Romanian TV, and that's how I was introduced to Chow Yun-Fat and directors like John Woo and Tsui Hark. I didn't know their names at the time, but I never forgot those movies, so it was very easy to find them later. Just like, of course, Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung, the great action stars. Yeah, that's interesting. A lot of these things just happened, and I've always had a particular inclination towards poetry and the arts, and so I didn't find it hard to recognize greatness. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen fit to revise my tastes, really. Even with action movies or westerns, I could tell early that these were amazing things. Growing up, I realized that a lot of that had to do with the confident way they showed America, but also technically, aside from the morality and the plotting, they're quite impressive. It was not hard to avoid the mediocre stuff that was just piling up everywhere as people were trying to attract audiences and try to hold on to these things that were really more impressive. And I guess this is what we're doing mostly at the ACF now with our podcasts, trying mm-hmm. to sift through to show the stuff that's really great or even has just a touch of greatness but is really worthwhile. So as a high schooler, and even once you got into your college years and, you know, had some kind of deeper reading under your belt, did you right away recognize in film its capacity to treat in a serious way, you know, deeper themes like courage or honor or love, you know, things that you would find in novels or poetry? Or were these two kind of separate things? I mean, I'll just tell you from my standpoint, it took me a while to really appreciate film's capacity to dig into these themes in a kind of deep way. I would say it really took um, people like Peter Lawler and Paul Cantor to convince me that film can be treated in this way and that the directors and writers were doing things that were similar to, if not quite on par with, you know, things that Shakespeare and Plato and Rousseau and others had done. So I guess I'm just asking when you started to treat film not merely as mere entertainment, but something that could reveal things to you about the way the world works. I can remember four things about this. One of the four is, when I was a kid, I used to read a lot of classics. And so when I started watching westerns as a teenager and other action movies, I could tell immediately that these people really are more comparable to Homer than they would be to most modern stuff. Right. And that naturally attracted me because when I was a kid, I loved it. But of course, I didn't know enough about America or about the way the movies talk about America and human nature to be able to figure much out as a teenager. Another thing is, as I said, when you're European, you have all this culture as a heritage and it comes with certain advantages because you just are told, whether you like to believe it or not, that masters, they're essentially metaphysicians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it helps you think at least about certain symbols more and not to take movies as entertainment. 
But of course, familiarity has its own kinds of problems. Uh, it tends to reduce poetry to the little explanatory note you would get in a museum next to a painting. Right. <laughs> and a third thing is... Your eyes read it, but you don't... I don't yeah. take it take it that seriously as it were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the third thing is when I was in high school, soon after it came out, I saw Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. That was the first time I saw a movie that I was immediately sure had a certain unity of theme and style was putting together every element, music, uh, costumes, uh, cinematography, sequence to say something really important. And I guess like all Wong Kar Wai movies, it's about Eros and in what way it may be doomed or it may reveal our doom. It's called In the Mood for Love? Yeah, that's the English title. So that was transformational for me. It was the first time I realized that this guy was a living director, really in his prime, before he became a legend. And he could shoot modern life and he was doing the same sorts of things you would see in Renaissance paintings that he was concerned with the same sort of things you'd find in a novel from the 19th century. And it hadn't occurred to me before that, that this was a living possibility, Hmm. which is one of the disadvantages of watching TCM is that you get the sense immediately that this is ancient history, so to speak, that this has nothing to do with our world. So you're not ready to think of it as a lived experience and as a teaching about the world in which we live right now. This made a very big difference for me. And the fourth thing was that when I was in college, I learned about Leo Strauss and I started reading this stuff. And it transformed uh, my interest in the classics and in poetry at the same time. For the first time, there was somebody who was willing to defend the art of writing as a fully rational endeavor. As I said, I grew up reading classics, so I was ready and willing to be told this thing. But nobody had said it to me before. Partly because, as I said, Europeans have a culture obsession, which gives you a lot of familiarity, but nobody's ever thoughtful about why these things are classics, as it were. It's much like asking kids in America in high school to read Hemingway or Melville. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. Melville's Moby Dick really is the greatest thing an American has written about America, but it's not something teenagers are ever going to understand. Telling them it's a classic does nothing to make it intelligible. Right. So also with our particular love of culture. But you do discover your tastes in a different way. In books, in poetry, in movies, in art, in philosophy. I discovered my tastes early and I knew all sorts of other people who had these concerns. A lot of this hinges on the fact that in Romania, like in America, sports don't matter in high school or college. And some of the place of that is taken by conversation about culture. Right. And uh, did you... It was easy to meet other people who were also similarly obsessed with poetry, and music, did you, movies. Did you start doing any writing about film in Romania? Or were there many opportunities for that, for this interest of yours to find an outlet in, in writing? No, the Romanian press was dying as I came of age to write. And I guess it's pretty much that there's not a lot of future. And I went to Berlin to study liberal arts. And because this was Bard College Berlin, I was naturally drawn to America, Mm. to American culture, to American writers. And these things were just not part of any conversation in Romania, where really European things would have dominated. My mind and my eyes turned over to America and I started following writers and critics. And I also had this advantage. As I said, I started from Leo Strauss and then I discovered Peter Lawler and Postmodern Conservative not from film criticism. 
I'm not given to getting sentimental about movies, and I'm not given to the strangely abstract language of critics. I prefer to talk plot and to talk about what is seen, the parts in the whole and how they add up in a story, because I had the good luck to come from this sort of education about reading stories and trying to account for everything that can possibly be accounted for. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How everything fits together. I mean, I guess we first met through the website Ricochet, and that's how you managed first to actually come to the United States, right? Yeah, I was essentially on a speaking tour. I was also visiting friends. And this is, again, as I said, I could not find any kind of future in writing or anything related to that in Europe, whether in my profession, I come from political science, I'm a grad student, and, or rather I was, I am graduated. And I could not find anything in any of my varied cultural interests. But on the other hand, all of a sudden, this whole new world opened up for me in America. Part of that was being introduced to Peter Lawler and Postmodern Conservative by our mutual friend Carl. Another side of it was becoming a member of Ricochet and talking to people there. And in 2016 it was, I did this tour of America for three months during the election season, meeting lots of people going through 15 states, I think it was, a vast journey. (laughs) And it was the first time I came to America. And of course I've been visiting once or twice a year ever since. In a sense, it's unique, but in another sense, I was sort of prepared for this because, say, a hundred years ago, um, authors, say, Oscar Wilde, would do tours of America because Americans are curious, they're interested, and you can go around talking to people. And as I said, this was unique to me and a worthwhile opportunity. I learned a lot about America, and I met a lot of people. Yeah, It's hard to describe what a difference there is seeing a place through people's eyes and seeing it as a stranger, as a tourist, but having had the opportunity to be introduced to so many different parts of America by friends was transformational for me. Right. And I remember reading some of your posts on Ricochet years ago and thinking, wow, this guy's got some interesting things to say. And then soon after that, I remember Peter sending me something that you had written a blog, maybe it was one of your first blog posts, and he wanted me to edit it. So I remember editing your, I think it was on Louis C.K.'s television show. Yep. Um, which I'd never seen. But uh, yeah, yeah. So that must have been 2015, maybe even, yeah, probably before you came. So yep. um, that's interesting. Yeah, it's almost four years now that we've been together at Comocon yeah. and since. You know, Peter Lawler introduced me to writing for American audiences, and he had the confidence and the friendliness to just tell me that I need to make things readable and to stop uh, <laughs> writing things in the obscure way of a grad student. That's right. And he had the fundamental decency. He could never take offense or feel rejected. But on the other hand, because he was sure that you had something to say, he had a certain expectation that it be said clearly. And he used to tell me that... Yeah, I'm interested in what you have to say about this, but get it done in one shot. I don't have the time to do editing on this. Get it right. readable. It's a, a spur to creativity and discipline. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. So. in a way, I think blog posts, oddly, can be a good tool for writers. I mean, if you don't treat it as kind of self-indulgent, 
I'll write about whatever I want, how I want, because it's only a blog post. But if you treat it as, okay, I have 800 words to say something substantive about this article or this movie, it can be a good tool to kind of force you to be clear and to the point. Yeah, inter- I cannot yeah, stress internet. how much the, <laughs> the art of writing I learned from Leo Strauss transformed the way I think about writing and reading. And when I started writing about movies, which is nine years ago, for a long time I kept a blog where I wrote hundreds and hundreds of essays. Partly the discipline of keeping things short, and partly, as I said, the art of writing transformed how I thought about things and how I organized ideas and arguments. I cannot recommend anything more than that to anybody who wants to know how to think about poetry and writing should be reading Leo Strauss. Yeah. So we have, let's see, let's count them up. The Flagship Series, the Critic Series, the Middlebrow Series, the American Masters Series. And then um, I, th- I guess the one that we haven't mentioned is your series on poetry. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we uh, do a... Um, series on modern poetry this is harder to do it's harder to talk to people about poems and to see why modern poets write the way they do and what they have to offer that's worthwhile it's been my experience that even or maybe especially people who love poems because they sound so beautiful are sort of insulted if you start thinking through them pulling them apart and putting them back together as though they were machines People are very touchy about stuff they love, of course. Right. But we do. We have three podcasts on Ezra Pound, two on Wallace Stevens with two more to come. And with apologies for immodesty, I will say that I've read some criticism on Wallace Stevens, including by famous people, and I do not recommend it. But anybody (laughs) could go listen to (laughs) my podcast instead. Hear me out on... The idea of order at Key West or 13 Ways of Looking at the Blackbird, and you'll see how clever it is and how well it is put together. We're trying to show that modern poets are wrestling with modern poetry, and partly that they have a strange new ambition as world makers, so to speak, as the human beings who alone have the guts to face the chaos and to try to order it up, and in that sense, superior to technicians and politicians. It's not an opinion that most people share, (laughs) but the (laughs) politicians themselves have this preternatural confidence, and it's in a certain way exhilarating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At least they think they matter. (laughs) Anything else you want to tell us about the, the ACF or plans for the future before we sign off? Okay, I think I've got a good thing to close on. Aside from our criticism, our podcasts, the writing and publishing we do on movies that we're, of course, going to expand and to centralize when we revamp the website, which is what we're up to now. Another thing I do for the foundation that I will be expanding is college lectures. Like you, I have lots of academic friends, and a bunch of them have invited me over the last couple of years to speak to their students, and we have been developing a couple of ideas this way, one of which is a course that will combine media savvy with political philosophy and a study of poetry to teach college kids how to think about media and the habits of media consumption, especially what it means to live within digital media, and on the other hand, how to think about poetry and political philosophy as they show up in our new digital lives that are foreign enough for us to be able to investigate them, but at the same time feel familiar enough that we know we could never do without them. It's a strange situation to be in, but it is unusually useful for reflection. 
and it's a good combination of technology and great books. That's one thing we've been working on. And beyond that, as I said, lecturing to college audiences to teach kids to think about pop culture. What does it mean that American art is middle-brow? It means that people should be listening to Tocqueville more, that in America all big social phenomena say something important about American character. They are neither transient nor really laughable. If they are not taken seriously, it's because people sort of want to defend themselves from people who think they're clever speakers, which of course all artists do. Yeah. The easiest way for people to learn about their situation and what they're going through is the movies. And my argument is simply this, about politics, people tend to talk in abstractions and at the top of their lungs, and also about other things that they love, like music. They're very passionate about it, they love or hate stuff, but it is not a subject of debate, and that's because these things don't have plots. Right. Whereas movies have a plot, and everybody at the end of the movie thinks, yeah, that makes sense, or bullshit. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there's something to talk about. When you can show them, too, with film, young people, I think, you can show them that the characters make this or that decision or undertake this or that action for various reasons, and that courses of action are foreclosed, and and so they can see there's a kind of um, freedom of action with the characters, and if you can get them to talk about, as you say, the plot and the characters in a very concrete way, not in a distract way, and not as a kind of critic in terms of, well, how did the director put this scene together? I mean, that's all fine, but I think uh, initially you have to get them to appreciate the action and the reasons why this or people do this or that, and and that's when they can connect film to their own ordinary experience and, and make it kind of come alive in a way. But I think you're exactly right that in a strange way, people treat these things, their instincts is to treat it very abstractly. And that's sort of the enemy of viewing it in a way that makes it come alive, right? As soon as you start to treat it abstractly and uh, take yourself out of the film and look at it as a you know, quote-unquote critic, then you're going to start to make the thing dead, And so I think you're right that as soon as you show them, these things are up for debate and um, they're meant to be thought about and interpreted in ordinary language that connects with your human experience. That's the way to get to the get the students to appreciate these films. I think there's a strange combination of cynicism and earnestness that describes young Americans and making it work for the best, getting rid of some of the worst habits and trying to tell people, if you really love something, then you should be thinking about why. I think that's very important. I think poetry has an importance in America now that it has never had, and I'm not sure it ever will have it again, partly because Americans really are in love with abstractions, and that's why the press is full of them and always has been. It has a certain advantage because in the American press you could do political philosophy like The Federalist or seeing Lincoln's speeches or things of that character. It's why people are willing in America to publish my thoughts. Whenever I talk about the movie, I talk about political philosophy and people are willing to pay me to do it. I know it's not a majority opinion, but it is tolerated and sometimes welcome and I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. But it does go against what you're supposed to do with poetry, which is be concrete even with strangely modern poetry that reads like weird puzzles, which is the opposite of a popular blockbuster, which everybody thinks they get. The point always is to see things as concretely as possible. What is he talking about that's a human experience? Right. 
getting to this other side, to the earnestness where people are willing to talk about their experiences is absolutely necessary because then you can use the strengths of a movie. I do not have the talent that movie makers have to make people not only see an action and its consequences, but to feel its importance, to have it weigh on them emotionally. Right. And uh, rescuing the reputation of movie makers is very important for that. If there's somebody who knows how to make people laugh or cry about various things, then that person practically knows psychology. Right. And that's what's really important. I think two things are in great tension in the teaching we try to do through the foundation. The future of American poetry is character. Plot has been evacuated from our movies and it will simply be destroyed. Soon it will become impossible to talk publicly about it. I'm not in favor of this. I'm a great lover of plot and of great stories. And my only reaction is to go back to Aristotle and to try to think through the poetics and why this is happening to us. But I think it's happening and there's no way around it. As you said, what matters for Americans is character. What the character of the character is, is the only thing that can be a good subject of poetry in America. And that involves a certain question about psychology and about the soul. What is memorable? Mm -hmm. Characters are what is memorable. Why is that memorable? And what are people looking for? Americans are looking to learn about their own future in characters. The rest of the story or the setting is only there to help people figure out, is this plausible? Mm -hmm. Do I need Mm -hmm. to take this seriously or is it just a joke? What they are obsessed with is character, and this will define the future, and it will make it possible, therefore, to do one of the jobs that poetry used to do, which is moral education. Mm-hmm. This starts, of course, in childhood with storytelling. In America, this is not obvious because there are a million different popular books for kids. If there were only three, then it would become immediately obvious that they have certain moral things to say, and that there are many other moral things that simply apparently cannot be said to American kids. The purpose of poetry is moral education, essentially, and for adults, political education. But that is, of course, why you need plots and rescuing the ability of people to follow a story and to understand what a plot is, is the other part of what we're trying to do, which is getting harder every day, and we're trying to start early, so to speak. I'm fully confident that the generation that's only now learning to use a tablet before they learn to read will not be able to follow a plot and will not be interested in one. Right. Well, in a a weird way, too, if you take films seriously and kind of open yourself to the possibility of enjoyment, films can be an avenue into novels. I mean, I was just thinking from my own experience, I would never have picked up Charles Portis's True Grit if not for the Coen Brothers film. I had never heard of the John Wayne version, and, and so that introduced me to one of the great characters, I think, in, you know, the last 50 years, Maddie Ross. And then the other example is Brooklyn. Ailish Lacey, I mean, that portrait of her in the novel is incredible. So I would hope that, you know, all the work that the ACF plans to do with young people would both pique their interest in film and taking film seriously, but I I would hope that that would also ignite some inclination, you know, to take novels seriously and to pick those up too. Yeah, I think that the changes in digital technology don't just favor the memorable and character over plot. They also do allow in certain ways for the retrieval of past forms of art. Uh, I'll point out that, say, what Americans who think they're sophisticated and watch Netflix series, what they're looking for is to read 19th century French novels. 
they never have, they never will, but that is what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. That's the psychological and social critique that they are looking for. And if there are people talented enough to do something similar to Stendhal or Balzac, Passant, Flaubert, or, you know, in another vein, Zola, that's really what's possible now. Mm -hmm. And people with that kind of ambition could get a Netflix contract. So it is possible to retrieve under our new conditions some of these old forms of art, just like I think it will be possible soon yeah. to actually make Shakespeare into movies worth watching. Yeah. Well, not only um, Paul Cantor's argument, right? Paul Cantor, I think, would equate, well, maybe equate is too strong, but I think he would say what Vince Gilligan did with Breaking Bad and what David Milch and others did with Deadwood and The Sopranos. These are works of a pretty high order that you know you can take seriously, and there's real depth. There's real depth there. I think Paul has done an immensely impressive job in showing people how serious works like that are. Yeah, I don't know anybody who's put more work into persuading academia and whoever is willing to read. He also writes in various journals and just for the press. So there's lots of people who, maybe even without knowing it, have read his reviews of various shows and movies. And of course, there are still his books out there. He's got a new one coming out this spring about why Americans are fascinated with bad guys. Mm. And we're doing some podcasts about the stuff he's talking about to spread the news and to reach into the digital world to persuade people to pay more attention. Paul Cantor has a rare combination of academic erudition got by long decades of study and, on the other hand, an all-American boyish love of pop culture. That's right. I still remember the stuff he loved as a child, and the feelings just come out there, and you can hear it in his voice. It's yeah. quite winning, and hopefully through our podcast, more people will hear about this stuff. Yeah, yeah that's and, true. And uh, I do think that people underrate what our storytelling can achieve, but I also think that our storytelling will have to transform before it can be worthwhile. And another project of the American Cinema Foundation is to start treating seriously the real growth in American poetry. Computer games. Hmm. These things are, of course, not yet a national issue. Computer games are a bigger industry than Hollywood, but the press ignores them for one thing, and to an extent just society, and as much as there is a public side to America, ignores this stuff. And we're going to try and make more of that precisely because that's where people are most obsessed with heroism. The epic and especially the tragic forms dominate the storytelling, and these are, of course, the things that are most missing in the rest of our popular culture. Right. So yeah. we are trying to reach out and show what it is that Americans have been doing that's quite impressive and here and there touched by greatness, bound not to simply disappear. On the other hand, it will be possible in a way that it never has been in Hollywood, it never has been on TV, to have Homer or Shakespeare done properly. To begin with, not cut up and not bowdlerized. Mm -hmm. It soon will be possible to translate works of that magnitude, and there is an audience out there interested. I don't think that the future is TV, even the new form of TV that we're talking about now. The future is going to be very different, but the thing that will dominate is character, and I believe social situation will be the complement to character. And these are not things that our storytelling as yet does well. People are still caught up in the idea of constructing a world that's plausible and detailed and that just charms and interests you and immerses you. I don't think that's the future. I think that's the past and it's really on its last legs.
Hmm. Well, we'll see if you're right. I hope listeners have enjoyed this somewhat atypical uh, <laughs> podcast, at least from, from the standpoint of the normal ACF movie podcast. And I hope your turn in the uh, interviewee chair hasn't been too painful for you. Um, I've enjoyed being the interviewer, so uh, maybe we can do this again if we can find some other reason to keep me in the interviewer chair. Well, thanks for doing it, Flag. It was a great idea, although very unusual. And uh, I think, yeah, we have got to figure out some way to keep doing this. If we can find some uh, other subjects to talk about. And of course, especially as and when we can get some of our projects rolling, it'll be fun talking about them. Yeah, well, sounds good. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. This is Flag Taylor signing off for the ACF podcast. Titus, we'll talk to you soon. All right. All the best. Bye-bye. Take care. Mm -hmm.